Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Paceler AG, the makers of PRTG Network Monitor. PRTG monitors your whole IT infrastructure 24 by 7 and alerts you to problems before users even notice. Find out more about the monitoring software that helps system administrators work smarter, faster, and better by visiting Paceler.com today or just Google PRTG. Welcome to the Packet Pushes podcast. The roundtable show format is getting a few engineers around the microphone to talk about their experience and what's on their mind. Now, we've been often told by many people when we get out there to meet you and people who email us and people in our Slack channel that this is one of the favorite show formats. And honestly, we've kind of let it slip for a while. Like for a while there, we just had so much other content that it just sort of got squished and out of the way. We've been really lucky to get out there and meet lots of smart people working on open source projects, ITF, or at our vendor partners, you know. Um, and it's really time that we reject the balance, I think, and we get back to having more of these roundtable formats. Now, we're probably going to try and make them happen monthly. So that is uh, try and get about one of these a week and get three, four, or five people on the podcast to just talk about it. And they're just people who work at companies as network engineers. They probably won't be vendors, but they'll be normal people just like the most of you. Like the if you're a vendor, thousand. you're not a normal person, I guess. No, no, I, I don't. <laughs> well, That's what I was hearing. You were wearing the hat. Come on, man. You were wearing the hat. <laughs> it's true. When they go into vendor land, they, they go into a distorted sort of sales-only mode. You know how it works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is so it's either going to be here on the weekly channel or on the Priority Queue channel. So make sure you subscribe to both feeds. We do actually have two feeds, and if you don't know about that, make sure that you head on over to wherever your favorite podcatcher is and subscribe to the weekly channel or the Priority Queue channel or if you want everything that we punch out on all across all of our five channels and more, subscribe to The Fat Pipe, which you'll also find on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, today, we welcome Alex Clipper, Eric Gullickson, Matt Elliott, and Stafford Rao to the podcast. We'll uh, get them to tell you a little bit more about themselves down later in the show. But let's kick off the discussion now. One of the topics that we've been raised is this concept of coping with encryption. That is, uh, one of the things that networking is often asked to do is to put encryption on the wire. So as data in motion moves around the network. The problem is, is that coping with it. So Stafford, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your challenge is here and then let's see if the round table can throw some, uh, throw some ouvoir at the wall and see what it's, see what sticks. Sure. Uh, so I work in the public sector and we have some specific security requirements that certain data has to be encrypted when it's on the wire. Um, anytime it's out of sight of our, you know, local physical control. So that means even though we have a very extensive dark fiber network, if that dark fiber basically as soon as it leaves the building, if there's that information on it, it needs to be encrypted. I philosophically feel like end-to-end -end encryption is really the only way to, you know, rationally increase your security, but due to the compliance needs, there's a big push for us to do just do MACSEC across those links to, you know, basically get the check mark down on uh, compliance. So Stafford, I'm assuming that uh, you were saying end-to-end -end encryption. I'm assuming whatever these apps are, you can't just light up SSL and off you go. There's, you need something else. That would be Absolutely my preference, and I kind of feel like it shouldn't be that difficult to do that. We're also talking about bringing the data into our data center 
and making the clients get to it through uh, like a VDI session that they have to VPN into and, and you know secure it that way. Why do you, why is why is MaxSec being thrown around as a as a possible solution when you have these other possibilities? MaxSec seems like a more painful way to go because there's such a limited amount of hardware that supports it and so on. Yeah, exactly. And there are uh, basically political personality uh, issues <laughs> involved in that discussion where I work. So you know, there was one way of looking at it that if we do MaxSec um, across you know, the majority of these links, then we'd be close enough to um, getting into compliance. Uh, there's also just a real heavy amount of inertia as far as even asking these organizations to uh, re-engineer their applications, even in just a very small way, that it just hasn't been done yet. Um, so what I'm hoping is that, you know, we're finally having the actual conversation on what we could do besides MaxSec um, to take care of this. And, and I'm, I'm hoping MaxSec doesn't end up being the only answer because, I mean, there's a cost well, to that. You well, know, the advantage of MaxSec is that it's in ordinary switches. Like, well, expensive switches, but right. and you kind of turn it on and then right on the Ethernet chipset in the switch, you're actually doing encryption at the Mac level. The mm -hmm. weakness of MacSec is that rotating keys is not often done properly. So right. It, right. in theory, if you've got a MacSec encrypted connection, if you don't rotate the keys on a regular basis, say, it's going to depend. It, if somebody captures enough data, they're going to be able to derive the keys because you'll be able to, uh, you know, in theory, right? So mm -hmm. MaxSec is a pretty is a poor man's solution. It's not robust and it's not safe. And generally, my experience with MaxSec was that it's not safe to rotate keys on Cisco or Juniper switches. The code just mm -hmm. isn't stable enough. You tend to invoke memory leaks or licensing issues or, you know, updating the code on the switches tends to break the MaxSec configuration or something like that. So it's not a very, I found MaxSec unsafe in general. I just wonder if anybody else has had some experience with it. I haven't had any experience with MaxSec, but I have done a fair amount of VDI. And hmm. this was one of the areas that people would implement it for because the protocols are actually encrypted natively. So you don't need the VPN. You just need hmm. the client app to be able to yep. get it to be session. And I'm lucky that I work with a really good systems group. That's one of the solutions that they're pushing for. Yeah. Um, and the advantage um, of VDI is that data doesn't go in motion. So at exactly. that point, it doesn't leave the data center. Yep. So um, the threat posture is very different in the sense that, you know, because the data is not being stored in the remote location, then the client doesn't need the same level of. Uh, secure as well. So when you work um, in things like the justice area, if you take personal data and you're in the justice system and you put it on a laptop, that laptop then comes into scope. Um, Correct. And then all of a sudden the laptop becomes unusable because now you've got to have hard drive encryption and boot security and operating system security and it usually takes about a year to find a working version of Windows that can be encrypted. And <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? You, you've experienced that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So most people in that, I think thin client is a popular solution. Anybody else? I'd agree on VDI. You said these are mainly legacy apps or are they mainly web apps? Yes. Or kind of legacy. Yeah. Uh, 
I would I would also lean towards VDI there with an with a web app you can get creative and maybe put it behind a reverse proxy that can do mm-hmm. SSL encryption but I don't nothing else really comes to mind as far as a great solution I mean if you really have to do encryption on the wire your options are MacSec or we so some SD WAN vendors have some really um, actually mm-hmm. affordable encryption options uh, that we'd looked at for customers with having to do high throughput high throughput IPsec. Um, which mm-hmm. can be done on almost you know on very cheap hardware, but uh, vendors typically charge a lot for it. Um, so when we were looking at the price comparisons, you know firewalls versus some SD WAN appliances, the SD WAN stuff was was much more affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never really looked seriously at SD WAN simply because you know maybe this is not a good way to look at it but we really don't have a wan it's we're very fiber rich where i work everything is our own dark fiber um and so it's easier it's easy to think of it as just like a really big stretch lan you know it's it's definitely a metro area network rather than a traditional wan you're running those the fiber links in between sites at 1 gig or 10 gig or more 10 10 yeah this next yeah. go around though we're going to 100 we're yeah i actually, think that that does limit some of your sd wan choices as well cuz they don't they don't forward that quickly they're not that active yeah. there are some solutions that are at 10 gig if i remember right but many are not they're 1 gig and down. i assume they're expensive yeah, that, need you know, higher speeds. Mm. There's well, another choice too. There's an entire market for layer two encryptors. Um, right. Uh-huh. They're usually military, if you know what I'm yes. saying. And, and they're right. much more focused on metro and carrier Ethernet. So they're high uh-huh. speed, they're data agnostic, but they do have advanced functions. Have you looked at those or have you thought about those? A little bit. Um, you know, I, I understand that. Enterprises don't care about cost, but uh, the public sector tends to. We tend to be a little bit tight. So um, the one thing that I am sort of looking into is uh, we have basically a transport group, and they're just starting to build an actual optical network. And there are some optical encryptors that we could potentially yeah, that, that, that was where I was going to come at next. Yeah. Some of the DWDM gear yep. is able to do optical encrypt. Well, it's not optical; it's still L two encryption, really. Right, it? right. Yeah, uh, because it's but, now a lot of that encryption is actually done in the ASIC. So when you talk to people like Broadcom uh, and uh, Barefoot and people like that, they actually talk about having the crypto engines inside their ASICs. Mm-hmm. And really, what the optical people are doing is doing it in an ASIC somewhere. Right. But again, the challenge comes. If you're going to encrypt a WAN link, you actually also need to rotate the keys regularly, at least monthly, if not more often. Uh, and most SD-WAN platforms, I believe it varies from vendor to vendor, but I had one vendor actually rotates the keys hourly because they have an SDN controller you know, in the cloud. It's really easy for them just to update the keys and distribute mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. The layer two encryption, I was racking my brain because I used to work with a product. It's been years and I'm old. I couldn't remember the name. It's Talos. Uh, Talos. Layer two encryption; those things were. We had some special requirement at a site where I worked. We had Talos boxes that were locked in a special cage with a special combo and a special key that only certain people knew, so they could even get in there and touch the Talos boxes if they wanted to. Because hey, you know that's what was required for this particular set of data to be uh, to meet all the requirements and the checkboxes and so on. Well, that's right. one of those. Uh, that's one of those things where you actually 
when you buy it, it actually comes with like 20 USB keys, and there's a black one, a green one, a red one. And I vaguely remember that stuff. That was one of those that I wasn't in on the project, but I was aware of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the data center nuclear manager. launch yeah. codes, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, well, there's a whole bunch of, uh, that's a whole uh, hardware um, encryption platforms, um, which you have to then say the red one is for data, you know, key rotation operations, but the red mm-hmm. one can only be used if the black and the red is, in, is also in place. So you have to have each one of the people has to come together in front of the box to plug them all in to be able to rotate the keys. So you can't do it unless all the USB keys are in place. And, <laughs> like, and the like, solution <laughs> is reassuringly expensive, as you would say, Greg. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of things. There's a website out there. Um, there's somebody that uh, Ivan over at ipspace.net keeps referring to, uh, and somebody keeps publishing a market overview of Ethernet encryptors, and I've put a link in there in the show notes. Oh, uh, excellent. somebody in Europe um, who's doing that, and he publishes a, a fairly long-form report on all the different ones in the market, which is pretty easy. Um, and he also lays out uh, what you're looking for in these devices too, which is talking about key operations and all that sort of stuff. And there's another company I know of called Senatas, which works in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of them also. Mm. So those, they're L2 encryptors, but I would also think about, um, as you said, SD-WAN is also a way to do this. They're not normally L2, they're usually L3. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't want to do, but they can also scale up fairly nicely uh, for not a lot of money as long as you stay away from the tra- – if you want to keep it low cost, you have to go off vendor. So don't yeah. go with the traditional vendors. Right. Part of the complexity, too, is that this data is spread all across our enterprise. So it's not a matter of just, you know, here's this point-to-point link that we need to take care of. It's these – nine locations with another couple dozen locations hanging off of them. That makes it even more fun and exciting. Yeah, I guess. I think it's it's one of these things where the first problem you're trying to solve is whether you, you know, do you want the data in motion at all? And if the answer is no, then thin client becomes the way to go. But mm. then you have the problems of living with thin clients because right. running a thin client infrastructure like a Citrix or a Microsoft RDP or a VMware, what do they call it? Horizon. Horizon VMware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is um, it, yeah, uh, it's, it's got its own <laughs> challenges. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, but I know. Then your data is not in motion, and then you can actually—it's always locked onto the storage arrays that accompany the the VDI infrastructure, and then you've actually got quite a bit of safety. So there is some value in the yeah. option. And our guys have Citrus experience, and they do—they have done some smaller VDI type deployments before so i'm rooting for them because i don't want to have to deal with this (laughs) (laughs) says the wise man (laughs) i I think modern l2 encryption is not too hard i wouldn't i would do maxec if i had to but i'd be Mm -hmm. my experience of it is that it's not something that's widely used and so the vendors haven't got vendors rely on customers to do testing these days and so the coverage yes. of testing with MaxSec is a bit limited because not too many people are using. So testing coverage is poor. Right. And then, you know, you you limit the devices that you can choose in any one location by having a, a requirement of MaxSec. And then if you yeah. also want to do VXLAN, that, you know, the intersection of devices that support those two features then becomes much smaller. Yeah, oh, but I mean, every decision is a lock-in. Like everything, every time you make a decision, like if you put in an L2 encryptor from a vendor, then 
<laughs> you know, then you're uh, stuck yeah. with, you right? So right. everything's a lock-in at some point or another. But, yeah. you know, if and you've you got, need two of them at least. <laughs> yeah. One for each end. That's right, of each link. So yes, you're not exactly. really going to mix them up if you can if you can help it, I guess. Right. Yeah, everything's a lock-in, you know, at some point or another. And yes, you're, but MacSec is probably the least locked in because it's widely implemented by several vendors in there. Uh, in the ASICs, they don't. All they have to do is enable the software, right? But you know, do, if you get, yeah. Do any of you have any interoperability experience with MaxSec? Because we are not not a homogenous network. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst? I could tell you what the. I know what I'm thinking, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I'm planning on. Probably not, as far as interrupt. <laughs> in theory, those. it's an open enough standard, but I don't actually know. Maybe if somebody yeah. knows, they could email us. Or uh, yeah, if you're, that would be awesome. If you're in the Slack group um, that we've got going at Packet Pushes, if you if you want to be a part of the Slack group, email us at humaninfrastructure at packetpushes.net, and then we'll get you set up uh, with an account if you're a normal person. Um, if you're a vendor, please don't ask. It's meant <laughs> to be a customer or an end-user community sort of a thing. Normal's relative, though. So one of the other topics we wanted to touch on today was how do we make code written by network engineers look better? Well, look better. <laughs> so, Alex, this was your point. Why don't you uh, sort of give us a key, give us some insights into that issue? Yeah, sure. So uh, I started writing network-related code in uh, somewhere the last year. Um, I was a total noob before that. I took a course that uh, got me started. Uh, but I see that, um, even I can see that my code makes my eyes bleed. So I don't want to think what it does to everybody else. So as part of my job now, I have to write code and I have to read other people's code. So I see that there is a huge market for uh, courses to get people started in, let's say, Python or any other language. But uh, there's no um, no education, no no courses to uh, teach us how to do it properly, other than taking a four or five year computer science degree. Um, so if everything I do and everything I see is substandard, how do I actually make uh, myself and other people code better? Well, Alex, are there specific things you're seeing in the code? Well, I mean, what is it that's making your eyes bleed? Well, just the fact that uh, the code is uh, supposed to be just comment-free and readable as it is. It's mostly not. Um, and just the fact that I'm not um, an experienced enough coder to read other people's code. And I feel like it wasn't covered in any of the courses or books that I, I saw. Which tend to be very function and uh, structure-oriented, don't necessarily teach good habits, so... You know, are your gripes things like these variables are named so you know weirdly or just not intuitively that you <laughs> just can't read the code and figure out what the heck is happening? Like if things got named better and there were some comments in there, it would be better. Or is it just you look at the structure of this thing and go, "Wow, it's terrible," you know? Or, or it's almost like that. Uh, what was that? The the obfuscated C code competitions. I don't know if they still run those, but the whole idea was to make code that was so impossible to figure out what it was doing that uh, people that could read the code would actually give you an award if you were the most uh, uh, obscure uh, code that was submitted. 
Well, it's uh, it's all of those actually. It's the variable names. It's not uh, breaking the code into functions enough and not naming the functions properly. Uh, just yeah, just makes it really hard to follow the logic of whoever was writing it initially. Yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like an education problem. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but. Uh, I, I have a computer science degree, and most of the classes related to that were about programming. And so we were forced into very specific structures and a certain discipline of writing and commenting and uh, variable naming and so on, some of which you just pick up the more you do it because it's easier for you. As you go back and look at code you wrote a while back, you go, oh, okay, if I look at this in six months, am I going to have any idea what this does? No. Okay, I better get serious about commenting this and putting some variable names together that make some sense. Um, but, uh, a lot of it's just, you just go for the path of least resistance and, uh, go for what's easy initially. And if you haven't been educated, you don't know any better. And so I wonder if that's really at the core of it, just network engineers who are used to being forced into a very specific structure because they're used to writing iOS scripts or Juno scripts that uh, accomplish a configuration. You try to take that into Python and it's a very different world now where you're more of a creator or an artist in a, in a certain sense as opposed to being locked into this very rigid structure. Well, it's more the fact that I, I really don't have the cycles in my brain right now to make it readable and beautiful. I'm just trying to hack something that will kind of work. Um, so, <laughs> so you're complaining about others. Are you are you throwing yourself on the fire too? Um, I, I'm not any better. I'm definitely not any better. I actually have a CS degree as well, and what I've found from that was the relationships I built with people I've actually kept. So I just have other people that are actual programmers look at my code. Uh. That way they can kind of give me a little bit of help. Um, so like the variable naming, you know, don't use one letter variables. That's kind of a simple one. I'm very verbose in my variable naming because it doesn't take a whole lot longer to write out a longer variable and there's copy and paste. So that helps a lot. And then like Ethan said, just comment a lot for yourself, not even for anyone else. Yeah, I think when, me, you have to, when you have to defend your code in front of another person and justify your actions, um, like if you're interacting on GitHub and contributing to a project, um, it forces you to think about your code a lot more and, and make it readable and write it for somebody else. And that's one thing I remember from from studying in school uh, is that that was preached a lot of you know write the code for the for the next person that has to read it, not for yourself. Uh, and I think that applies to network engineering in a lot of ways as well. Uh, but from you know how can we collectively get better i think it's through practice you know reading code and reading a lot of it and there's a ton of it available on github and then writing it and then reading some more and writing some more i mean that's that's really the only way that that i i got better at it and i, I think that's a pretty a normal uh path for folks to follow yeah I, I think a good example of that just since we were talking about variable names when you are doing conditional checks it may be something like an if then else statement if it forces you to really understand what that variable is and what you're testing for, if you give the variable a name and all of a sudden your test doesn't read right, it's like, wait a minute, that's not actually what I want to be checking for. It forces you, you can actually catch flaws in your logic just based on how you name things and then putting a statement together and realizing it doesn't actually make sense because you didn't, you weren't thinking about it right initially. And, and that's the kind of you know thought process you go through that only pops up 
if you've been working on it for some amount of time, if you've been coding and coding again, there was a meme I saw on Twitter that was like that. How do you get better at coding? And the answer was something like 10 steps. And one was like, write code. Two, read code. Three, write code. Then read code. And just go going back through it over and over again, just making the point that the more you do it, the better you get. Yeah, like Ethan just said, what I do as an example for that is I'll put the type of data that's going into the variable, I'll put in the variable name. So if it's an integer, I'll put INT. If it's a string, I'll put STR. That way, when you go out down farther into your code and you're doing some sort of checking, you're like, wait a minute, that won't work because it's an integer and I'm checking for this string value. Um, I think the, the point of practicing enough is uh, that's a difficult one for me because you know operationally, I don't really get time to write much code. And so if I'm only getting a chance every couple of few months it's kind of like i have to relearn just the you know python basics all over again um each time i do it but you know part of that i'm sure is just uh you know some personal discipline yeah it, it helps if you have a project that you want to write code for then right. all of a sudden you find time oh i really really want to get that done because it's fun or it's it's cool or it'll really help you a lot and then uh, that's where i find my motivation for some of that stuff although in fairness i haven't been doing much lately either i was mm. just talking to uh, to pete lumbus uh, actually he's starting to get a lab set up and that's part of what i'll be doing is uh, writing some scripts and doing some api calls and things once i get that lab up and running because um, i i need to do more in that space for sure but i got to come up with a, a fun project that'll make it worthwhile uh, right, and that, right. then I'll then I'll be good. I'm not one of those network engineers who is, you know, us old guys. We've always done it this way. So I I enjoy the opportunity to do some coding, and you know, I've dabbled my foot in the Ansible automation that kind of stuff periodically, and and I really enjoy it. And I think even as we get older, just being able to do different things keeps it fresh and interesting. It's just making enough time to really get good at any of it. Mm. I think there's a few things you can do, though. There are a bunch of um, code style guides on the internet where companies like Google and GitHub and stuff, uh, there's, there's hundreds of them, so don't. <laughs> um, but there's like advice on how to write code for a particular language. Uh, it can be useful to put those and use and to read them and start thinking about why, you know, if you wrote code with this sort of grammar, I call it grammar in my in my head. I don't know what other people call it because I've never worked with other developers. So my code, like yours, is nasty. And ultimately, I learned on Perl, which is idiomatic in the extreme. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Perl was my first uh, real language. Yes. Uh, so by I, Randall Schwartz and uh, Mr. Christensen. That's right. You know, by all means, I am not. And people that I've spoken to who go from being uh, self-taught, often working alone, to being in teams, they find the best way to improve their code is because other people review it. So when you work for bigger companies, um, especially vendors, they write code and then they have to go and give it to somebody else who then has to read it. And then if they don't understand it, you have to go back and do it again. If you haven't commented it enough or if you're using some sort of weird algorithm or whatever, you've got to explain, justify it. And when other people are reading your code, you tend to get really good at making it readable. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> there's the two Out things. Out of embarrassment. That's right. And I've also heard of uh, different 
editors. So if you're into things like Sublime Tech um, or those types of editors that are well supported in the community, um, if you're using a linter is one way to get a first step uh, because a, a linter plugin will help you to format the code more consistently, uh, force you into sort of what I, again, what I call grammar, you know, have you got indents, have, you know, have you got all that, are you closing all that, that sort of stuff? Um, and the second thing is that a lot of those, they also have um, style checkers again, where they say there's not enough comments or you need to put comments and things like that in your code. So m maybe it's worth investigating your tool chain. So get yourself an app, like a really good text ed uh, code editor like Sublime Text or Coda or I don't know. There's dozens of them in there, Ethan. I can't. Anyway. Um, and then well, Sublime the Text one is my personal favorite, so no other ones leap into mind because I haven't been looking for other ones. Yeah. And there's like thousands of plugins for Sublime Text, mm. including linters and code checkers. Yep. Does your code match style guide? And if it throws up errors as you write it, you might actually find yourself developing good habits. Uh, and then the last thing is also get into, and this is where I struggle right now. I'm still trying to learn how to use a CI/CD tool chain. So that is when you write code, it goes check it into a GitHub or a Git repository, and then it goes straight into a continuous integration, continuous development cycle. I don't think for the nasty stuff that I've been trying to do that it's actually worth climbing up that hill yet. But uh, if you start putting it into continuous integration engines where they take your slurp up your code and then start running automated tests on it, that tends to drive really good behaviors. Some of that's a bit excessive, I know, but that's how the bigger shops uh, measure yourself. Does that sound like anything that would be helpful? Uh, well, yeah, I do use Sublime Text, and uh, I'll uh, look into the, um, the plugins that you mentioned. Uh, now, a CI/CD pipeline is really an uphill battle if you're a network engineer, not a software engineer. Mm -hmm. uh, but I agree that it's it's a really good tool, uh, but it's just something else on top of uh, whatever difficulties I'm having already. Um, now, regarding uh, code reviews, it's a really good idea, but if uh, the person who reviews your code is just another network engineer with pretty much the same skills that you have, how viable is it? So uh, I think the solution to this would be getting an actual software, uh, software developer to get your code reviewed, but I don't know how... Um, how viable that would be from the company standpoint to take an engineer for I don't know two three four hours a week to review networking code. Mm. Well, you mean you've got it? I guess that's a, if you want to write good code, talk to a developer. If you want to write good networking code, you need somebody just like you to. Talk. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, and that's why you exist. There's not normally enough networking people to actually. I. I don't know. Do something in public. Publish on a GitHub and get people to help you. Yeah, yeah. public or, shaming for the win. Well, <laughs> <laughs> very scary. Yeah. So well, we were talking about like, we were talking about style guides. Uh, I just wanted to mention that Python has uh, some people that are strong believers in PEP eight PEP eight as a style guide. There's websites where you can check that your um, code is uh, is PEP eight compliant and uh, and so on. We've got a bunch of links in the show notes around that. If that's something you've never run into, I don't think everyone in the Python. I mean, I'm not a, really a big Python guy. I get the sense that not everyone in the Python community is a PEP eight believer, but some certainly seem to be. And there's an awful lot of um, tools out there that enable you to write uh, in that style. I mean, the Packet Pushers Slack channel as well. There's 
how many people are in there now? There's quite a few. I'm sure there's a few of us out there that could. Yep. Mm, there's code. the uh, network to code Slack too that mm-hmm. has, you know, some pretty. I'm not too fantastic. sure how many of those people would review your code for you, but that's oh, the best. That, there's that nothing like true. publishing yeah, your code to make you think twice about publishing it. <laughs> 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 to, to make yourself evaluate and reevaluate. Uh, uh, is that is any of that help? Uh, yes, definitely. I did get some uh, points to look into. Thanks. Yeah. Eric's talking. Eric's mentioning that Atom.io is another one. I'm not a big fan of Atom myself. Have you used it? Yeah, I, I used that one actually over Sublime because I had problems with Sublime a couple versions back on my MacBook. Mm-hmm. I, I use Atom, and our, our developers um, that write a lot of uh, Python and DBScript and other things, they really like VS Code, and it's free. Runs multi-platform. Yeah. It's got a lot of plugins, especially for Git and other other tools for linting and everything else. So they're they're real high on it. You're talking about Visual Studio, VS Code. VS Code, yeah. Well, there's there's I've VS Code is a free version, and then it's it's a you know it's the free option compared to you know, full blown Visual Studio, I believe. Let's pause the podcast for just a moment to remind you of our sponsor, Paceler, makers of the PRTG Network Monitor. Now, if you're remembering the free PRTG tool from many years ago, and it was this fun little thing that's useful, but not really for grown-ups, you have really lost track of Paceler. PRTG is this very serious, full-blown network monitoring solution that integrates with many different parts of your IT stack. When they came up on our radar ooh, a year or so ago and began talking to us about what they were doing, it's like, oh, wow, this is not the PRTG I remember at all. PRTG is many things. It offers a powerful alerting system. There are several different interfaces that you can use to access all of its data, including there's a web interface and a Windows native interface, iOS and Android. Uh, PRTG has a clustering option, and then they have application support for all different sorts of apps like Apache and Oracle, for instance. Uh, There's a map designer feature with over 300 different types of map objects. Uh, They got distributed monitoring with remote probes, really handy if you're in a WAN environment. Um, there's a SaaS option if you don't want to have to house PRTG internally. There's detailed reporting and, and more. It, it is, uh, again, a, a serious network monitoring system well worth adding to your bake-off list. And you can try out the unrestricted version free for 30 days. All right, this is PRTG. So how do you find them? If you just Google PRTG, they're right at the top of the list there. Or you can head to Paceler.com, P-A-E-S-S-L-E-R, Paceler.com. And now back to the show. Well, guys, let's move this topic along to uh, to getting old. So it's a topic mm. that came up on the Slack channel about those of us that are getting to be over 40. We're still in tech, um, but feeling like there's a lot of younger people out there. And, you know, what's our career tracks if we're over 40 and we maybe don't want to go into management? Or do we want to go into management? And, you know, and, and so on. Matt, Matt, was it you that brought this one up? Yeah, I didn't originally bring it up, but I, you know, since we discussed it, there was an article that came out uh, that kind of dove into some of IBM's recent practices. Um, that they, you know, the jury's still out. Obviously, these are all allegations, but they had uh, really uh, gone after many of their older workers who make more money and you know, also have more experience. But they, you know, the allegations that they want IBM to look like a, you know, younger, hipper, you know, cloud native type type company um and uh I, i'm for i'm turning 40 this year so uh the thought of that is you know a little alarming that it's happening and may be happening on a large scale um i it's not something i've personally run into um but you know just sitting in interviews as i as i do sometimes 
occasionally if an older person is uh, interviewing for a job over a younger person, it, it, while illegal, it still can be held against them in some cases, even if it's not spoken. Um, I, you know, it's not uh, not an easy problem to solve, obviously, and um, there's laws against age discrimination or, or any discrimination. Uh, we all have to take those HR you know, handbook classes that tell us what we can and cannot do and what's ethical and what's not. But um, it's, you know, it's somebody who's, it's not a, not something that had been on my, my mind until, you know, this upcoming year when I'm turning, turning 40, but I'm going to have to, uh, you know, really find, find ways to stay, uh, you know, stay on top of my game more than well, I had been. So a couple of questions. Do, do you, you guys that are in that bracket feel like your companies are, interested in moving you along kind of like that ibm article suggests or are they trying to give you a career path or do they just seem happy for you to keep you know grinding along as long as you can do your work well um i don't personally feel like i'm being uh, pushed away and i'm currently in a company that i well probably can work there for a long time if i want to but uh, up until now i was uh, changing jobs uh, roughly every year and a half, two years, and I'm I'm turning 35 um, sometime in the near future. Um, I haven't actually seen um, any actual discrimination, and I am heavily involved in the recruiting process. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, I don't see too many engineers above 40 around me, and I do have a lot of network engineers around 40, uh, just network engineers in general. Uh, so naturally, it is something that um, I know all the usual, like just stay relevant, you'll be fine. Uh, but uh, everything you guys said uh, on the previous chat was right. I mean, um, younger people, they ask for less money, they work more hours. And uh, if you're older, then what do you bring to the table? I mean, your experience, obviously. But uh, is it actually needed a lot of time? And what else is there? I mean, if you're struggling to to keep yourself relevant enough, why would anybody hire you over somebody younger? Well, I, so there's, there's two different things there. One would be why does your company keep you, and then two would be why would someone hire you if you were out trying to find something new. You know, your company keeps you. you know, I can say from a, being in a position of having been in a manager and needing to you know, hire and keep people uh, around, finding decent people is very difficult uh, under any circumstance. And it doesn't matter how good the resume is and all the different protocols you know or certifications you have or whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a good uh, person to have as an employee. You can be knowledgeable but be so difficult to work with that uh, that, <laughs> that they're sorry they hired you ultimately no matter how talented you are. So when you, as an employer, find someone that is good to work with and uh, is a good team player, a decent human being, and fairly reliable, uh, and has the skills, boy, they want to hold on to you. And as you age, they'll be willing to keep you around to a point. You know, there's a a budget. You can't walk in and just say, yeah, today you're going to double my salary. I'm walking. They'll say, well, we'll miss you. That's how that'll work. But, But you do have some... Uh, comfort level that as long as you know the company's not going through massive layoffs or a difficult business situation, you're around. You know you're going to be employed. I think, but finding you know if you're in a position of uh, as a company of trying to find someone new, you, one of the things you may be considering is budget. You've only got like I've been I've been in a situation of having to fill positions. Here's your salary range that you can hire within. 
you've got, you know, the position is $65,000 to $85,000. You know, and then you hire some, you you interview some people, and what are your salary requirements? Oh, I need to make ninety ninety two. I need to make ninety five. I need to make one hundred and ten. And it's like I can't hire them. They'd be great, but they're you know they're older, they're experienced, they're very capable. I can't afford them, and so that's the situation there. It may not be that they seem undesirable just because they're older. It may be that, or in my experience, it's more likely that. They're just too awesome. I can't. I can't afford them uh, because of the salary that they're demanding. So unless they were to come down in their salary requirements to meet the range that I've got to work with as a hiring manager, I gotta say sorry. We can't. You know, we. I'd love to hire you, but we just can't work that out. Um, so I think. I think I have maybe a little different take on it. I think larger. That, that also comes from a background of typically more mid to smaller companies that I've worked with. Larger organizations are different because, you know, we hear those all the time where the story is larger corporation needs to, basically, they need more money, they need more profit, they need whatever. And so there's a, there's a headcount coming and they, they, just, they just chop heads um, for financial reasons. And a lot of times those are older people, people, if they can give them a golden, uh, or a, you know, retirement package to, uh, to get out the door, they'll do that, you know, as a way to slow down or, you know, reduce that cost pressure of, uh, of people, which tends to be the, one of the highest expenses that a company has. Uh, and, you know, so older, older folks are maybe a target. So it's not about, I think it's more of an economic thing than, uh, you're getting older. I don't think you got the, I don't think you got the chops anymore. That's a situation I personally haven't run into. And a lot of people I respect the most are older than me at my, at my, Tech, tech-wise, old age of 45. <laughs> I'd, I'd no, agree with that. And I would think a lot of it has to do with just the industry. So if you're looking at like a Google or Amazon or some, you know, someone in the Silicon Valley, they want to be all hip and, and hard charging and work 80 hours a week uh, no matter what, um, they're probably much more likely to push for younger people and even to the point of perhaps violating certain standards or that kind of stuff. But for me in the public sector, um, that's really not a factor at all. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it's different. I mean, a lot of the people I work with are older, even some even older than I am. And, uh, you know, there are people who are retiring from our group um, in not too much longer. So part of my problem is waiting for some of the people ahead of me to get old enough to age out and retire. So, cause otherwise I don't really have any, um, advancement path. yeah nowhere to go because you yeah, got people that are so, in that spot and maybe protected by a union contract i mean they're, they're not going anywhere doesn't matter how yes. big of a crowbar uh yeah. they're just they're waiting yeah i i did some public government work as well and we call those kind of people waiting to die they didn't do yeah, much uh, some of yeah. them unfortunately but they they were there, locked into that spot boy there are some really nice things about where I am, at least, in that we are union, and I'm actually hourly, so I get paid overtime for getting called at 3 a.m. in the morning and having Look to Look at the big in. bankroll on Stafford. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't, my regular pay might not be fantastic, but uh, it, it works out. The benefits are at, 
honestly are, are one of the big things that keep me where yeah, I am. Yeah, absolutely. That, that of course, is usually the, the trade-off. The salary may be eh, but sometimes you get hourly based on your contract, and right, you get that time and a half for... I almost never got paid time and a half, but they always put time. They always had to account for it if I if I had to work overtime for some reason. So it was usually paid time off. Uh, some paid time off bank would accumulate. Right. That right. they never. <laughs> how do I how do I actually use this because there's too much to do anyway? That's a different discussion. So I <clears throat> I, I mean, Alex, you brought this up. Do you feel threatened or just kind of a just a vague sense of dread because of what you're seeing in the happening happening in the industry broadly? Uh, no, I don't feel threatened at all at this point in time, but I would just like to know if there's anything that I can start doing now in advance of the preemptive strike, so that when I do get to 40, I will still be able to, I don't know, keep my current lifestyle, uh, job-wise, I mean. Like, I, I do want to keep switching jobs, maybe not that frequently, but um, I don't want to get stuck in the same position or in the same uh, company for 20 years until I retire. Um, so you, might yeah, change. I do. <laughs> yeah. you might change your mind as you get older. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm in my early 50s and I can feel the fact that I don't cap that my ability to keep changing and adapt and to learn and accept that is not what it used to be. I'm, I'm getting less and less. Um, and I get more and more, like part of my frustration with things that don't work properly is it's, I don't see it as a challenge to do those things anymore. I just see it as um, hard work for no purpose. And and once upon a time, I would have embraced these failures and gone, what an opportunity to learn something and to, you know, it's a challenge. I'm going to go and challenge myself. And then uh, as as you get older and you don't want to keep working 80 hours a week or 60 hours a week and you think, you know, maybe 35 is enough. 35 hours is actually, you know, plenty um, you, you're, there's a chance that your personality might change is what I'm saying and your energy levels change as you get older. That might be one way of looking at it and maybe you'll be ready for a, a different role when you get there. Well, I'm kind of there already. I mean, my, car, my current job is uh, the most stress-free job I ever had, surprisingly. Um, but, um, well, let me throw in a hypothetical so let's say you're hiring for a job and you've got two candidates, a 20-year-old and a 40-year-old. Both have the same knowledge gaps. Both ask for the same salary. Who do you hire? Uh, it, this was something that I, I, put, I put out recently. I put out a YouTube about this sort of topic. And the answer is it depends on the employer to some extent. So if you're in Silicon Valley, you'll always hire young because you think young people have more energy and they're also stupid. They're way more stupid. They'll work stupid hours. They'll overcommit and, you know, they'll actually believe stupid stuff like, you know, the company has a mission and a purpose when, you know, <laughs> I would take the view that your purpose in life is to go home, you know, mm. or be in the pub having beers with your friends and doing crazy, you know, like getting on a plane and having a holiday in somewhere fantastic, not stuck in an office somewhere writing code for somebody that's going to exploit the hell out of you. Do you know what? So there's that. There are a group of companies who want young, dumb, foolish people who are going to overwork and overcommit and feel insecure about themselves. But there's also people who want older, cunning, smart, who can communicate well, who can say no when it's the right time to say no, who says it wouldn't be smart to do something this way because that would cost you more because I can see a five-year thing. And sometimes people want the people who are old and cynical 
and have experience because they know what is good things and what is bad things. Yeah, that that, that resonates with me, Greg, exactly. Like, uh, Alex, you put an interesting s- scenario there that I don't think we'd ever run into in the real world, a 20 and a 40-year-old asking for the same salary and being able to justify it. That seems unlikely to me. But let, you know, assuming that's true, I would lean towards the 40-year-old for what Greg just said, that experience. There's something, you know, assuming the experience has been in tech, there's something that comes, there's a certain wisdom that comes in making technical decisions. So particularly if the role is a, a leadership role where they're going to have to make choices or you know, make recommendations to the business to help to solve business problems, I would lean towards that 40-year-old more than the 20-year-old uh, for that reason. I, you know, but I think, I think a more realistic scenario is I've got a 40-year-old and a 20-year-old that are pretty similar for in technical skills and knowledge gaps for a particular position. Uh, but the 20 year olds coming in, you know, hungry, you know, they, they are willing to work for a lot less and they don't have a family. They're not married yet. And they don't have kids and a mortgage payment. And about the only stupid thing they did was probably buy a car that was more than they, uh, than they could afford, but it was so shiny. Uh, but, (laughs) but their, their overall salary requirements tend to be lower for those reasons. And so there's situations where, well, I kind of wanted the older guy, but, uh, but this 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 twenty year old girl that showed up, well, you know, she she she'll work for less money, so I'm going to put her in the spot instead. That that could happen. Yeah, I think so one thing is just the idea of if I were forced to find a new job at this stage, that's a much scarier position to be in. At you know, I'm Greg's age, so. Um, and I have a family and responsibilities and commitments and stuff like that. So I can't just, you know, afford to be really picky and choosy at this point. So I think that's where age really, seems to me age really makes a difference in what you can risk as far as change. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And I think the challenge here as you get older is you've got to stay flexible and fluid. And and that can be difficult because it can be a little comfortable to be, you know, if you're a CLI jockey and you've been, you know, artisanally handcrafting CLI configurations on Cisco iOS devices for 25 years, which is entirely possible, you might have forgotten what it's like to work on other people's equipment, to deal with, you know, other vendors or to work on equipment that's outside of your core competency, you might just not have done that. Mm-hmm. And and the fear, and all of a sudden, it, it, it and you might not even be aware that you've been pigeonholed and you've actually dead-ended your career because you actually haven't moved on. And pretty much anybody who's listening to Packet Pushes would probably realize that because right. Right. I, well, I think the reason people listen to this is to be informed about what's happening in the industry and what's, uh, you know, what's going on. Um. So, but, you know, there are people around us who who might just keep doing the same thing because that's what they've always done and, and not be aware of it. I think that's the way you age-proof yourself, if that's such a thing, is that you stay you stay up with what's happening. You follow the industry trends. Yeah. Uh, you listen to packet pushers and you, and you read blogs and you, you know, follow smart people on Twitter. Uh, but that in itself, for me, sometimes feel like, feels like a second job because there's so much content out there. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to you know be the the trusted uh nerd you know where i work and uh it's hard 
one of the ways that you keep up is by writing and blogging for, for people that are in this space. And I know a lot of, I keep finding more and more networking blogs out there and adding them to my, my blog. If you only write a few times a year, that's a way you keep up uh, and demonstrate your knowledge and authority. Uh, and there, uh, Russ White, for example, he's older than I am, and he writes extraordinarily much, often, frequently. Wow, his output is astounding, and he yeah. you know, keeps up and demonstrates his knowledge. And he's older than probably most of us on this call. Uh, there's others that I know that uh, have got years on me, and yet they're extremely sharp and active consultants with very large clients. Uh, um, some of the the folks at uh, Net Craftsman, one of the most esteemed uh, uh, consulting companies in the country, works out of the D.C. area, roughly. Uh, Pete Welcher, I'm not sure what his age is, other than I think he's a bit older than me. He keeps up with no problem. He's been on this show many times. He shows up at Tech Field Days and asks the most ins- insightful questions that are there. Because uh, he just he does the homework of keeping up. Yeah, it's a burden. Um, but uh, but Pete writes and blogs, and so does Russ, and so does a lot of other people. There seems to be a trend with these folks that manage to stay right on top of things. Uh, that they'll put that time into reading and then um, representing to people that follow them what they've learned via that writing. So, I think the other thing here, Ethan, is that people, uh, older people, can actually end up dead ending themselves because managers don't let them be flexible. So if you've been working at a company for five or 10 or 20 years in a particular role, your management might also be stale. And You, the you mean like uh, you, you're the guy that pushes the red button for me? I don't want you to do anything other than push the red button because I know you can do it? Yeah, well, I mean, recently we've seen IBM. There's an article here where um, on ProPublica, I put a link in the show notes, where IBM's being accused of age discrimination because it's getting rid of older workers. But I can also imagine that if you're working for IBM and you're an older worker, maybe you've been doing 30 years of mainframe and they don't need you anymore. They're not getting rid of you just because you're old. You're getting rid of you because you're actually stuck in your ways. And the challenge there is to be to, un- to do professional development, to understand when the road's running out of uh, bitumen. And the other thing here is uh, Cisco, for example, has recently got rid of a lot of the senior people. You know, those uh, uh, all of these vendors have engineers that sit right at the top of the food chain and they get these blessed roles where they can do anything they like and cisco recently cleaned house uh, hpe did too by the way and so is dell and they're cleaning out a lot of those older people and i don't think it's because they're old particularly but i think it's because they don't represent the future of those companies and if if you're uh, you know somebody who's got a, a history of 20 or 30 years of representing i don't know bgp or ospf or mpls but you're not seen as somebody who's grabbing onto the SDN revolution because you're saying, well, yes, SDN, you know, you might be saying, yes, SDN's coming, but for now we need to keep working on it. You could be seen as not adopting the future. So you're moved out the door because you're not following where the market's going, if that makes sense. So it's up to you to realize that maybe your employer is actually blocking you and they may actually end up dead-ending your career if you're not careful, if you're not watching for the, for the, ro- the road finishing, get running to an end. So what I'm hearing is that it's a positive that I've been ADD all my career when it comes to technology, and I hate doing the same thing over and over again, so I typically don't. Well, I think there's a few things. Yeah. I mean, also, before I answer that, I want to come back to one thing. I, I did a YouTube video this week about this. It's called Go Past the Resume, Build a Portfolio. So a lot of people just rely on when they get unemployed for whatever reason, they have a resume, and they go out there and hand the resume, Right. And you hand that to a recruiter, and the recruiter shrinks your resume down to three pages at most, and often just down to one page. 
and then they select, you know, from 200 resumes that they've got on, on the database, they do a keyword search and then select 10 and then take them to the customer. The customer, you know, or 10 or 20 or whatever, it depends on the deal. And then the recruiter has to, select, you know, the, the customer or the recruiter will select three of them to interview at most. A resume is a really dumb way to summarize 10, 20, 30 years of experience. So really you need to be blogging, posting code on GitHub to show a portfolio of work. So if somebody says, I like this guy's resume, let me search him up on the internet and see what see what they've done. And then here's your blog. And over the years you've posted, you know, you know, 20 posts a year. They can go, oh, look, this guy's actually quite a good writer. And look at that, good, good diagrams. And oh, he's been working on all these different things. I think I'll give this person an it. You need to build a portfolio, I think, to give you a anyway, go and watch the video. It's the links in the show notes, or just subscribe to Packet Push's YouTube channel, and you can get more of me attempting to be a YouTube person thing with your sexy face. Yeah. So to come back to your point, I think there's value in being multidisciplinary. There always has, and in past podcasts we've talked about having skills that are I-shaped. That is, up until now we've all worked in silos, and you've been an expert in the silo that you're in. So maybe you're a BGP expert, or maybe you're a firewall expert. But you're not normally thought of as a networking expert. You might be good at one thing. And increasingly, networking is becoming replaced by infrastructure engineer. So that means you also have to be good at storage and some servers and some apps and you need to know. And then increasingly, we need to know how to. So it's not so much, some people call that T-shaped skills. So you're broad across the top. You're thin across a lot of things, but you're deep in one thing. But I actually think you're probably more likely to be end up in a W, like an inverted W, where you're moderately competent in a number of different things, lots of little prongs, and then you're very broad. And that's going to be a better skill going forward because as hyperconvergence takes off, as cloud like cloud and hyperconverged and private cloud need you to bring dozens of skills together to be, to become DevOps, if that's what you're or something like it. And so I think, yes, you're right. ADD, multiple skills, understanding what's going on in adjacent disciplines will position you to transition as we go forward that's what i think anyway anyone else well uh, i found that uh, going out and doing uh, part-time teaching really helps mm. uh, especially little more advanced courses because then your students will guide you to whatever your gaps are they will ask questions about what's bothering them at their workplace and if you're behind you're gonna know mentoring is what you're teaching and mentoring is what you're saying? Uh, well, yeah, I, I've been actually teaching classes for about a decade up until I came to Australia. And that really helps both to solidify the, the knowledge that you do have and to broaden your horizons. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of quotes there around Richard Feynman. If you can't explain it, you don't know it. Something like, if you can't teach it, you don't know it well enough or something. Yeah, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. Yeah, something like that. Okay, well, I think we're sort of running to the end of the show today. What I want to do is get everybody who's around the table to uh, to tell you a little bit about themselves. So let's start off, I guess, with Eric, I suppose. Eric Gullickson. I'm an architect at a manufacturer distributor in the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, I have a heavy VMware background, so that's where the my focus came from. And so I get more into the infrastructure and systems side. So uh, let's say thanks to Matt for joining us. Why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, Matt Elliott. Uh, I've recently started blogging at networkbrewhaha.com. 
I'm also on Twitter at Network Brouhaha. I'm a network architect uh, in uh, Kentucky, actually. I work for a small MSP, CSP, VAR. We do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your contributions. And also with us today is Alex. Please tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, yep, so I'm Alex. I currently work for uh, AWS as a network engineer. Um, I'm not very social, but if you want to find me and you speak a little Russian, um, you can find me on a podcast called Link Me Up. Go. How, do, how do you say that in Russian? Just impress us there. If you want to find me, listen to Link Me Up. I wish I could learn another language. That just sounds so cool. <laughs> and also with us today is Stafford Rao. Uh, hi, I'm Stafford. Um, I'm a network engineer in the public sector here in Oregon. Uh, I've made a couple of stabs at blogging over the years. Um, I'm not currently, but uh, I think I've been um, inspired to get back into it and build a portfolio. So. Yes. Always, always be nervous. Have one eye on the door. Always have your portfolio ready to go. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so and as far as I know, I am the only Stafford Rao in the whole world. So if anyone wants to try and find me, I can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you also for attending, Mr. Banks. And I'm Greg Farrow. Of course, uh, we are both the founders and hosts of the Packet Pushers podcast. And thanks very much for listening to Packet Pushers today. Uh, you should find out more about Packet Pushers. We have this fantastic website called at packetpushers.net. We're on Twitter. You're on LinkedIn. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts. That'd be really helpful. We also have a YouTube channel, which uh, I'm practicing. Let's just say it's very much uh, uh, I'm doing my best to be as good at it as I can, which isn't very good, I think, but I'm trying. Uh, and as always, uh, and don't forget that you can join our membership system. We have a regular newsletter that goes out every fortnight where you can find out. And we also send out an, another newsletter called uh, the Link Propagation, and that's where we get together a, a collection of links that we bring up every day, uh, and then we get them all and stick them into a web page and then send you an email at the end of the week to tell you to come and visit the web page and remind you that's there. And that's the value of the membership system that Packer Pushes has got. I hope you'll be interested in that. And as always, remember, last but never least, too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>